You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Recorded live. <clears throat> All right, well, we're getting down to the wire, so have I'm, I'm ready to rock and roll. All right, I'll message you as soon as we get on the air so you know you, we can hear you, okay? Okay, that sounds great. Thanks, Lisa. All right, you're welcome. I'm going to take my dinner. One minute until showtime. Heck yeah, baby. Need to do like the scene from 2001 when Elvis would come out there, man. That big drum roll and everything. Well, we're live. On, we're live on talk show too now, so the rights of the few on talk show. So just to let okay, you know. I'll make sure to mention that. Okay, that's my double show because I do the Sunday night show, no, and I do I do it on both. Right. Well, this will be a first for us, so that that we'll we'll hit the ground running with that. Oh yeah, I do it for Keeper Show on Wednesdays, unless I go through a spell where I get tired of hearing talk shows, and then I don't do it for nobody. But <laughs> 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 so much you can take before you just got to say, "I need a break." Exactly, and then you got to hit the decompress. Your show will go live in five seconds. Four, All right. three, two, two, one. one. Thank you, British chick. Lock Talk Radio.
It's the weekend perspective. How in the world are you? Um, got an exciting thing. This this kind of this is the first time we've done this. Wasn't even aware we were going to do it, and found out literally minutes before showtime. We are simulcasting. Of course, you know we're doing this on Blog Talk Radio, World Integrity News Network, and we are also simulcasting on Spreaker through the good offices of Brian Robertson and the Whites of the Few, which is a WINN show here on Blog Talk as well. So we're excited about that. Technological first for us here in the week, uh, the weekend perspective. Okay, here's the deal. I'm not exactly sure where to start. I got a lot of things to talk about, and um, I don't, I don't know, I don't know exactly where to start. It was about this time a week ago that uh, the the series of attacks that took place in Paris were, were going on, and and we were we were in the middle of a lot of that here. We talked about it, and you know it was kind of the, the situation was still fluid at that time. There was information coming out; some of it was good, some of it wasn't so good, and and, they, and you know what they knew was kind of sketchy at that time. But it was it was about a week ago this time and we we still hold the the good citizens, the the people of France in our hearts and prayers. Well about a month before all this happened and, and the reason I'm going back with this is because everybody is holding up this pudgy little socialist in in France as a decisive man of action and for having a little bit of spine, some stones about him to go ahead and do what he's doing. And uh, it was about a month ago that French President Francois Hollande was ridiculing this idea, this notion that the massive numbers of Muslims that were hemorrhaging into his country were any kind of a threat at all. Here's what he said. He said, those who argue that we're being invaded are manipulators and falsifiers, and they do this for political reasons, to scare people. Then he had to be rapidly evacuated from France's national soccer stadium after one of those refugees blew himself up trying to reach President Hollande and Angela Merkel's foreign minister, Walter Steinmeier. Minister Steinmeier was another one of those who urged rejecting the idea of barriers or fences when it came to the Muslims. But it was just exactly that. It was a barrier and security personnel in front of it that kept one of his beloved refugees from reaching him. The ordinary people who didn't have and don't have the security measures that protect people like Hollande and Minister Steinmeier, they died in Paris. They were blown up or they were gunned down where they sat or stood. Now, before the guy whose passport had the name of Ahmed al blew himself up, 
at at the soccer stadium. He came on a boat from Turkey, along with hundreds, thousands of other refugees. He passed through Greece. He got through Serbia. He got through Croatia, along with all these other people, including, I'm sure, journalists and human rights workers and social activists looking to, do- to you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Document, report on the, the plight of these poor refugees. It might have been a real passport. It might have been a fake passport. It doesn't matter. Nobody was even going to pay attention to it. The name that was on the passport wasn't on an Interpol warrant, and so, boom. Straight to Paris, nonstop. In countries like Greece and, and, and Croatia and Serbia, the local authorities who are trying to process all these people passing through, they don't care. The Muslims themselves are allowed to fill out their own paperwork, and in exchange for that, they turn that in. They're handed these letters of transit that allow them fundamentally unlimited access to Europe. They just have to, we just have to trust what they write down is what one of the local registration people said in Greece. We just have to trust that they're telling us the truth. Now, in the aftermath of this, Hollande gets, he gets all puffed up and, and they're, they're doing, they're carrying out airstrikes and they're, I, I suppose, dealing with it as severely as they think the public wins, you know, will tolerate. I'm sure they're not going to accept because here's the thing. Don't make the mistake of thinking that people like Francois Hollande or Angela Merkel or uh, Cameron, David Cameron, any of these people have learned any lessons from what happened in Paris. In September, just two months previous, Hollande told the French that he had information that attacks against France had been planned from Syria and that they were planning for future airstrikes against ISIS. And in the same speech, he tells them that France is also going to be taking in another 24,000 Muslims. So what can we take from this? Well, we can take that President Hollande knew ahead of time that this disaster was coming. He even prepared a response for it at the same time that he's welcoming, literally as it turned out, the potential perpetrators right into his country. He looked his nation in the eye, the President of France did. He looked his nation in the eye. And then he lied to them about what really is an invasion. This morning, this is going to be kind of a kind of a weird segue, but we're going to go with it. This morning, as most of you know, I'm in the school business, and uh, that's my daytime job. And I work in the special ed department of the high school that I graduated from. So I got that whole welcome back Cotter thing going for me. And it was a beautiful morning. And the reason I was standing outside was I have a young man that doesn't ride the bus to school in the morning. His mom brings him in and she comes to the back of school and uh, there's a parking lot back there. And I wait on the boy and he comes in and we go into the school and then back down to the classroom. So I'm looking. And I'm looking off into the east, and the sun's coming up, and uh, 
there are a number of jet contrails in the sky. And at this time of the morning, the the contrails aren't white like we see during the day because of the angle of the sun and, the, you know, it's, it's that reddish orange of early dawn. And they, they, they were beautiful, just reddish orange streaks running across the sky. And I've also, I've, I've always had a thing for, for airplanes all my life. And ever since I was a little kid, I can remember stopping whatever I was doing and looking up and, and watching the airplanes go by. And, uh, with all the stuff that's going on with, uh, these, these, these hordes, these hundreds of thousands of Muslims invading Europe, like I said, hemorrhaging literally into Europe, it, it made me stop and think naturally about Muslim terrorism. And when I looked at those jet contrails, I got to thinking about September 11th. 2001, and how for three days, I think it was at least three days, maybe more, three or four or five days, there were no jet contrails in the sky across this country because no airlines were flying. Nobody was flying except military aircraft. And I thought about how easy it was for the terrorist acts of, of 9-11 to take place. And now, what, what do we see? The FBI, James Comey at the FBI says, there's no way to vet these people. And I'm just wondering how long it's going to be before there's a Coke can bomb on one of the aircraft leaving from O'Hare or from Los Angeles or from Dallas-Fort Worth, or from some little podunk airport in Oklahoma, somewhere. It's going to disintegrate a few thousand feet up into the air. Everybody killed on board. And, you know, since, since 2011, since September 11, 2011, and these figures go as of 2012, so... <clears throat> Just take a look in the news. Think back on the last three years and think back to yourself on the number of news reports you've heard about Islamic terror attacks. Well, from 2001 to 2012, there were over 20,000 Muslim acts of terror. 20,000. Not to mention the number of attacks that have taken place from 2012 to the present day, which if we've seen anything since the beginning of the Obama administration, these terrorist attacks have ramped up considerably because we're not killing enough of them. And that's going to be a problem, a big problem sooner than we may think. Excuse me. But Ahmed Al-Hamid isn't really, I mean, that name doesn't mean anything. It's Muhammad Atta. It's it's, uh, Al-Zwahiri. It's, you know, a a terrorist by any other name is still going to kill Christians and Jews and inflict damage and, and rape women and children. 
But that name is just one of the names we need to think of. Here's some more names for you. Here's some more names of the people that are responsible for the massacres that took place in France. Francois Hollande, Angela Merkel, David Cameron, Stefan Luffin, Prime Minister of Sweden, as well as most of the other prime ministers and European heads of state. And didn't the Pope insistently call on Europe to take in more Muslims? Didn't, didn't he start talking about that? All these people that we just talked about. And their predecessors in office throughout Europe have the blood of these dead French citizens as well as other European victims of radical Islam on their hands because they have willingly and knowingly imported millions of these cats from subhuman, barbaric Middle Eastern cultures. They knew they knew that the largest measure of these cats were going to be military-age young men. They knew that a substantial minority of them were going to be supporters of radical Islam. So when the unthinkable happens, which they knew it would, they, they act surprised, shocked, shocked and appalled at this outrage, and they vow to secure their borders. Well, I don't think it's going to happen. It's too late. Are we going to learn? Are we are we going to learn from these people from what's happened in Europe? I I don't know. I would hope that we would. We we've got. What's the point? Let me put it this way. What's the point in sending troops, and, and that's what the French are doing, you know, and the Russians are doing it. Um, what's the point in anyone, the West in general, whether it's us, whether it's France, whether it's the United Kingdom, whoever, what's the point in sending troops to the Middle East if these people in Europe are going to bring the Middle East here to the West. The Paris terror attack has brought up this this from you know people on the right, conservatives saying we need to confront them aggressively. <clears throat> we need to confront ISIS aggressively, which I agree we do, and we need to do it overseas. Everybody laughs and talks about what a jerk, you know, what a jerk George W. Bush was, but he was right when he said, you know, it's, it's preferable, and I'm paraphrasing here, to fight them in their cities as opposed to fighting them in ours. So you've got conservatives that say, you know, bomb them, bomb them all, bomb every single one of them, bomb them all day, bomb them all night, take a carpet bombing attack uh, and just run with it, carpet bomb them with daisy cutters. There are people that say, you know, Newton Mecca, I don't know where it stops, but we're going to have to kill a lot of them because they're intent on killing a lot of us. So in order to keep that under control, 
we have to have them in a position of weakness, and that means killing a lot of them, a lot, a lot of them. They're like the Nazis. But anyway, you've got conservatives who say we need to be aggressive with them, we need to deal with it overseas, we need to be proactive, preemptive, and with that policy, I am inclined to agree. You have liberals over here crying, saying the the rising anti-Islam sentiment is, is just going to make the jihadi problem worse. The number one priority is this. We have to stop this influx, this Muslim invasion into the West, and we have to stop it cold. When they try to save the the failed and and decaying, dying multicultural strategy, which they think is, what the, you know, the ultimate aim is to import a bunch of left-wing voters. What we hear is the, the Muslims have to be vetted a little bit better. Well, here's the thing. You can't, all right? Countries like Syria and Turkey and Greece and Serbia and Croatia, these places, these other middle they, they're called third world countries for a reason. They don't have the databases. They don't have the technology. They don't have the, the people to run those kind of things. We take it for granted over here, but, but they, they don't have it. It's 1963 in those countries. So we're, the information that we get is, is – James Comey said it today. It's almost impossible. It, w- it would be all but impossible to try and, and – and, deal with these clowns. So you can't vet them any better. A lot of people out there of the of the school of thought and there's not a whole lot of argument against it, that legitimate argument against it that I can see that this is being allowed to happen. And there's look at Merkel. They're they're raping the living daylights out of German women. She says we we've got to we've got to be tolerant. <laughs> we got to be tolerant. We got to show them that we're good people, and and they'll quit raping us. Maybe they know this. They'll just kill us instead. It, and like I said, Halan knew what was going to happen, and then he turns around, and even after the Paris attacks, he says they're still going to be opened up to Syrian refugee refugees, Muslims. Now, let's just look at the math. Let's just say you get a million Muslims that enter a nation over time. And let's just, let's just one one-tenth of one percent. One one-tenth of one percent of a million Muslims will be terrorists. Well, that's a thousand right there. That's a thousand jihadis spread out all over your country. Spain, Italy, France, England. Another thing that makes that makes the, the, the vetting process just about impossible. It even if we did have everything that we could get on these cats, all it tells you about is what is what was. 
Well, the Sarnayev brothers blew up everybody at the Boston Marathon. Them and their mom, those two guys and their mom were just refugees, right? <laughs> yeah. Somewhere along the line, something happened, and they got unrefugeed, and they turned into what they probably always were, Orthodox Muslims. So in other words, you got a record of somebody, and let's say it is who they say it is. Let's say the, the name on the passport's right. The picture is actually right. There's nothing false. It's all there. It doesn't tell you what they're going to do. So in other words, even if all those one million migrants have, quote, clean records, I'm doing the air fingers thing, how many of them are going to become terrorists in the future? How many of them will become radicalized once they get into the right mosque? Once, once the right imams start instructing them, again, let's just call it one-tenth of one percent. That's a thousand. And think about this. Studies have shown that young Muslims in Europe are actually more radical than their elders. So let's take these cats that get radicalized, and they don't get caught. And they have kids. What do you think those kids are going to be like? They'll be trained from, from diapers up to kill Christians and Jews. Again, one one-tenth of one percent of a million Muslims is a thousand Muslims. Now, that is a remarkably conservative estimate. And um, I had a montage I wanted to share with you, but I have yammered on too long for this segment to do it. So we're going to close up on this stuff. Uh, thank you for reminding me, Lisa. But but here's the problem. Like I said, yeah. okay, let me put it this way. How many times in history? From the beginning, how many times can anyone out there tell me of one time in history where large numbers, million, large number, where large numbers of Muslims have willingly assimilated into a non-Muslim culture? Tell me when that happened. Tell me when that's happened. Nancy Pelosi, tell me when that's happened. Barack Hussein Obama Jr. III, tell me when that's happened. Hillary Rodham, Clinton, Rodham, Clinton, Rodham. Tell me when that's happened. Uma Baden, tell me when that's happened. Cheryl Mills, tell me when that's happened. Jen Psaki. <laughs> Man, what a Stepford wife chick she is. Tell me when that's happened. Just once. I did a little bit of looking up this afternoon. I don't see it. There's no such thing as Muslim assimilation. That's 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 a that's an oxymoron. Okay. Like I'm from the government. I'm here to help. But yeah, it is. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's.
So, so assimilation is a myth. It's just a word that's tossed around like diversity or multiculturalism. Last week, I went to a Veterans Day parade in my hometown. Hadn't done that in years. I had moved away for a long time and then came back home a couple of years ago, and I was invited by a friend of mine to get out of the house and stop hating people and not answering my phone or my door and looking out my window threateningly and to go up because she has a son that's uh, he's in a high school marching band and and I was glad that I did. I was glad that she said this. I live in a little town in West Virginia, in the coal fields of southern West Virginia, little place. Never even heard of it. I'm not even going to tell you that. And we're standing, watching the parade go by. Some some older fellows I know from from World War II in the parade. The marching bands are doing their thing. The kids are there. It's, it's great. It's small-town America at its finest. There's a great crowd. There's a great turnout for the parade. And, and I'm standing there, and I look across the street. Some little kids were picking up candies that had been thrown out. You know how the floats go by, and they, they do all that. And uh, there's a shop on the other side of the street that I had not noticed before. And it is a grocery store, I suppose. That's that's what the, that's that's what we're we're led to believe. And as I'm looking at, I'm looking, I'm facing the store because, like I said, it's across the street. And on the window to my right is a list of halal foods, halal goat, halal pigeon. How you know it's it's it's, it's been butchered and prepared in. in the Muslim, the Muslim rituals. And there are these big, thick, heavy curtains over the windows of the store. You can't see in the store. You can't see in the store. I mean, they're, they're big, heavy velvet curtains like you'd find in an old movie theater or a funeral home or something. You couldn't see in the door. Big glass windows, big glass doors, you can't see in. So where I do this stuff so much, the first thing I'm thinking, oh, we're up on the break. First thing I'm thinking is, okay, you know what? One of these days I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn on the Internet. I'm going to be looking at the news. And I'm going to see where this Muslim grocery store, this butcher shop, or this Muslim building, this building posing as a Muslim butcher shop, was actually loaded with ammonium nitrate and fertilizer and blew up the federal building adjacent to it. Again, Maybe it's a million to one shot, or maybe it's just one-tenth of one percent to a million shot. The one-tenth 
of 1% of 1 million is 1,000. Okay, we're coming up on the break. I need to I need to stop for a minute. I'll just talk and make a fellow thirsty, and we'll, we'll be back after this. Lisa, we'll save the montage till after the break. We'll go ahead right now. You are listening to the Weekend Perspective, WINN World Integrity News Network, and on Spreaker through Brian Robertson, the rights of the few. We'll be right back after this.
Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It is the week in perspective here on World Integrity News Radio. And also, and, and I told you wrong, I've got to apologize for this. We are being simulcast. That much is true, and it is with uh, with Ryan Robertson's The Rights of the Few, a show he does also, a fine show, incidentally, on WINN. But it is on talk shoe. My mistake. I said Spreaker, not even close. I was so, like I said, this is new for me. We've never done that. We've never simulcast this show. And so it's kind of exciting. And apparently I was so excited I didn't even know what the hell I was talking about. So, Brian, I apologize. You'll be able to, we're simulcasting off of talk shoe. Not Spreaker, talk shoe. We, I wanted to talk about the debate, but really I can't get off this, this whole deal with, with Islam and the president of the United States. I do not believe is a Christian because quite frankly, it is difficult for me to imagine this particular cat imagining that there is any power greater than himself. We've talked about this in the past. I'm I'm not going to go back on, on it again, but uh, you know, we, we talked about the, uh, the Dr. Robert Hare assessment for determining sociopathology and, and narcissism. And we've talked about how many times this president and, his, and, and members of his administration have absolutely pegged the meter on this. So we won't do that. Um, no, there is no deity higher than Obama in his eyes. I don't, I also don't think that he's, he's a Muslim in terms of uh In terms of uh, what's the words I'm looking for here, you know, and, and the case is made, and it is a solid one. He was educated outside of the United States. He was uh, the, those first couple of years, those fundamental years. He's in a uh, he's in a madrasa. Yeah, they say one side of the school was uh, <laughs> was was a Catholic school, and the other side was a madrasa. But it doesn't matter about the uh, the other side of the school because he wasn't in the other side of the school. He was in the madrasa. So the first, you know, five, six years of his life, fundamentally those formative years, is uh, madrasa. So I think, like I said, he's, he's pretty much an atheist. Yeah, he went to Reverend White's school. He went to Reverend White's church and all that crap. And I think that he deifies himself more than anybody else. But there is a very important distinction here, almost universally missed by both sides of the uh, of the aisle. He's not religiously a Muslim because I think if he was religiously a Muslim. He wouldn't be supporting a homosexual agenda and women in combat and transgenders in the military. Those things don't reflect Sharia. They just don't. So while he may not be religiously a Muslim, and what I'm talking about is going to the mat 
three times a day and doing that. Very much culturally a Muslim. Between the ages of six and ten, he's in Indonesia with a Muslim stepfather. His earliest memories, he says himself, was of life in a Muslim culture. The prettiest sound on earth at sunset, the Muslim call to prayer. And he recites it with a very authentic accent. He avoids Christian events and trumpets his Muslim heritage. And I have an example of that, Lisa, if you have the clip ready. Sean Hannity did this a couple nights ago or maybe last night on his show. It's a four-minute montage. Not my words, ladies and gentlemen. Not my words. His words. Lisa, go ahead and play that clip, please. We are no longer a Christian nation. We do not consider ourselves a Christian nation. The United States has been enriched by Muslim Americans. Since our founding, American Muslims have enriched the United States. Islam has always been a part of America's story. There is a mosque in every state in our union and over 1,200 mosques within our borders. You know, one of the points I want to make is, is that if you actually took the number of Muslims, Americans, uh, you know, we'd be one of the most largest Muslim countries in the world. Let there be no doubt, Islam is a part of America. Many other Americans have Muslims in their families or have lived in a Muslim-majority country. No, because I am one of them. But my father came from a Kenyan family that includes generations of Muslims. As a boy, I spent several years in Indonesia and heard the call of the Azan at the break of dawn. I have known Islam on three continents before coming to the region where it was first revealed. That experience guides my conviction. You're absolutely right that John McCain has not uh, talked about my Muslim faith. We will convey our deep appreciation for the Islamic faith, which has done so much over the centuries to shape the world. I would like to speak directly to the people and leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Their great and celebrated culture. Over many centuries, your art, your music, literature, and innovation have made the world a better and more beautiful place. We know that you are a great civilization, and your accomplishments have earned the respect of the United States and the world. I also know civilization's debt to Islam. It was Islam that places like Uluzad that carried the light of learning through so many centuries, paving the way for Europe's renaissance and enlightenment. It was innovation in Muslim communities that developed the order of algebra. Islamic culture has given us majestic arches and soaring spires, timeless poetry and cherished music, elegant calligraphy, and places of peaceful con contemplation. They have fought in our wars, they have served in our government, they have stood for civil rights, they have started businesses, they have taught at our universities, they've excelled in our sports arenas, they've won Nobel Prizes, built our tallest building, and lit the Olympic torch. And when the first Muslim American was recently elected to Congress, he took the oath to defend our Constitution using the same Holy Quran in ancient times and in our times. Muslim communities have been at the forefront of innovation and education. Islam is not part of the problem in combating violent extremism. It is an important part of promoting peace. 
the enduring faith of over a billion people is so much bigger than the narrow hatred of a few. In the United States, rules on charitable giving have made it harder for Muslims to fulfill their religious obligations. That's why I'm committed to working with American Muslims to ensure that they can fulfill zakah. It is important for Western countries to avoid impeding Muslim citizens from practicing religion as they see fit. And I consider it part of my responsibility as President of the United States to fight against negative stereotypes of Islam wherever they appear. I'm grateful for your hospitality and the hospitality of the people of Egypt. And I'm also proud to carry with me the goodwill of the American people and a greeting of peace from Muslim communities in my country. Assalamu alaikum. Okay. Not my words, America. Not my words. His words. So, yes. This, you know, there's there's no question about it. I'm not going to, you form your own conclusions. The evidence is that which all can see. However, no matter how much this stuff influences his thinking, his cultural Islamism, no matter how much it influences him, there is something greater, much greater. And it not only characterizes the president, it characterizes all leftists. And that is hatred of the West. In Obama's narrow universe, the West, and I'm gonna I'm gonna just in my own speculation, the United States preeminently is the cause of most of the evil in the world. The West is oppressive, it's destructive, it poisons everything that it touches. And in order for justice to prevail, Western institutions and Western influence must be smashed. Consider the Middle East modern history. And this comes from Selwyn Duke, who's a pretty smart cat when it comes to things. Syria's current borders, as it exists now, they were created by the West after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So we're going back into like First World War, in the First World War. And then later, of course, the CIA covertly backed the Arab world's first military coup in that nation back in 1949. Italy took Libya from the Ottoman Empire in uh, the Italian-Turkish War, which lasted from 1911-1912. In fact, the name Libya itself was adopted by Italy during the colonization of the region. And um, so you see this splintering in the Middle East. Egypt, part of the Cold War. First, they were friends with Russia. Then they switched allegiance to the United States under uh, Sadat. And then uh, Assad in Syria was supported 
and and looks like he's going to be continued to to have the support of the uh, the Soviet Union. And then in Libya, Gaddafi was what an ally of the Soviet Union. They they got they got a lot of funding from those guys. So. <clears throat> All of the Middle East, as it exists today, going back, I guess you want to take it all the way back to the First World War, is our fault, because the Middle East, as it exists today, with the borders it has, is is what Selwyn Duke calls a largely Western construct. In other words, it's, it's the, the territories were set up by diplomacy, backed up by guns, and and we got it there. And the leftists say, you know, well, the only reason that the Soviets are there is because we were there. And they were trying to deflect or counteract what whatever Western influence, whatever negative Western influence they perceived to be. So the president is, uh, again, I think the, the best way to say that is, is culturally a Muslim. But like I said, even with that influence, he's, he's look at look at what, what happened when he came back to the United States. Grandparents, mom, all left-wing nut jobs. Frank Marshall Davis, we don't even have to go into that, member of the American Communist Party. And so I think his cultural Islamism and those influences clearly explain his anti-Semitism and his antipathy for, you know, the victims of these, these Islamic assaults. And, and these attacks that Muslims come up with, he, he he makes the noises. You guys have all heard him. I mean, you've heard his responses when these things happen, and there's just, you know, it's just flat. Don't watch it. The next time, well, go back and look at his response to what happened in Paris last week. Just go YouTube or Google, whatever you got to Pull it up. Listen to it. Don't look at it. Don't pay any attention to him. Just close your eyes and listen. He sounds tired. He sounds perfunctory. He sounds obligatory. He's just going through the motions and saying this stuff because it doesn't move him. He doesn't care. When it comes to these kind of things and when it turns out that the bad actors, as they have been, 20,000, probably 25,000 times by now, 20,000 plus times since September 11, 2001, he's not moved. We can't go jump to conclusions. There's always some kind of rationale. And, and John Kerry, that horse faced horse's ass at Secretary of State, says we've got, you know, we have to try and understand, you know, they're, they're, you, you got to try and look at it from their point of view. No, I don't have to look at it from their point of view. <laughs> like, 
it's like that, you know, it's, it's like trying to apologize for the Nazis. It's no different. These people, and, and if you want to go back and look at that history between the, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and, and Hitler, and because, uh, you know, Netanyahu got in, he, everybody got crazy over something he said that was right, and they didn't like it. They just, they couldn't dispute it. They just didn't like the way he said it, so they were being candy asses about the whole thing. Sorry, I'm sorry. I got to quit that. Y'all pray for me. Something's happened to me over the last few months, and I'm, I usually make it a rule not to cut. I really do. And uh, I, I, that's been slipping out a little bit, and I'm sorry about that. Yes, you are listening to the Weekend Perspective on WINN. Also, uh, simulcasting on TalkShoe. Brian Robertson invites you to see it. So this has been kind of exciting. But Okay, we we got to get off. I got to get off this stuff. It's, it's making me nuts. Um, we'll talk about my real hatred. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to lie. I hate Muslim terrorists. I hate I hate what I see in Europe. I hate what I see here. When I see honor killings taking place in the United States, as they have been for a number of years now, when I see what's going on with when I see what's going on, it makes my blood boil. But I tell you what, I really hate, and I've hated him for a long time, and I'm not going to apologize for hating. And I've got about six or eight minutes left and I'm going to burn him up talking about how I hate this guy and I'm not going to feel bad about it. And you know what, after the show's done, I'm going to light the drinking lamp as I do. I always like to have a couple of cocktails post show on Friday nights. I don't know why it's capping off a long week and, and, you know, closing it out, getting to do something that I really dig with people that I really dig. And so I hate Bill Nye. Okay. I hate that SOB. I can't stand that smarmy, know-it-all, uh, woods the out, give a hoot, don't pollute, we're all going to die from climate change, can't get a job at NASA to save his sorry behind. I hate him. <laughs> I hate him. Now, here's Bill Nye, and I, I don't do a really great Bill Nye impersonation, but I've seen enough of his YouTube videos in the classroom where I work. Like I said, I, I told you guys, I'm a special ed guy. I work uh, I work with guys. In, and, and so we watch. We, that, that Bill Nye, you know, he, the teacher in the room, she likes Bill Nye. And she thinks that Bill Nye is like an actual scientific dude, okay? He's a kid show host, y'all. When I, when I was growing up, here, here in Southern West Virginia, one of the local one of the local telecable stations that we got was WSAZ from Charleston, Huntington. It was an NBC affiliate, and they had a weatherman there by the name of Jewel Huffman. Jewel was a fine weatherman, a small town, small market. Made his entire career at WSAZ, and I think he did some radio work too. And he was a good weatherman. And if Jewel told you the weather was going to be rough, you might want to pay attention to him because he knew his stuff there. But you know what? He was also a character named Mr. Cartoon. And from 4 to 5 on Channel 3, WSAZ, in the afternoons Monday through Friday, he had this wild-looking get-up, and uh, he ran children's cartoons. I know because I watched him, and I love Mr. Cartoon. 
Bill Nye is Mr. Cartoon trying to be Mr. Wizard, Bob Abier. Now, there's a real scientist, but that's another story. Anyway, Bill Nye's got a thing with NASCAR now, and I got this off of Yahoo, and that's exactly what they are, a bunch of Yahoos. I'm not going to have time to do this. I've ran it. It's now 7.54. Science educator, comedian, idiot Bill Nye, the science guy, is watching a NASCAR race with his family, and it is bittersweet. The super-fast car zipping around the track is exciting, Nye explains in his latest book, but the technology is depressing because here I am trying to envision the smart, efficient transportation technology of tomorrow, and there's NASCAR celebrating a very old transportation technology of yesterday. You might call NASCAR the anti-NASA. I am not making this up. This anti-NASA. Apparently, dude hadn't heard of Slick 50. <laughs> so, and I just, I just, okay, shut up, Bill. That's all the time we got. You guys, listen, Thanksgiving week is coming up. I hope you have a happy, blessed, and safe Thanksgiving. If you're traveling, you have traveling mercies. I pray those for you. Take care of yourselves. Good night. God bless. Stay tuned for Mark Hoffman, Patriot Nation, right here on the World Integrity News Network. I'm James Bostick. You guys take care. Thank you, Lisa. Happy Thanksgiving. The common goal should be turning America to its constitutional republic roots. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice that people make to accomplish certain things.
president of the social agenda. They have two in court and have successfully closed down the business. I say enough's enough to let's see this beast no longer. Feed the beast no more. So join our national boycott that is targeted right now eight corporations and sponsors media to catch that official list. Head over to Pastor Sylvester Bland's page www.cunitedstateofamerica.us or call 951-360-3399. Send them again, 951-360-3399 or hit up www.unitedstateofamerica. Thank Paul, thank Peter, floralized. Thank you. United States of America, US. This is Dave Bray from the Patriotic Rock Band, Madison Rising, and you're listening to Reach Out America. What's happening, folks? Just about 8 o'clock, Friday night, November 20, 2015. we got a great show on Captain Saturday. It's also Republican candidate, the Walker Rubio. Thank you. 
www.madisonrising.com today to for information and merchandise and to see what they've been up to with the Defend Freedom Tour, head over to their alternate site, defendfreedomtour.com and concern veterans for America as they are doing great things for veterans across this country like Lewis Arthur and Veterans on Patrol out in Arizona. And you can, might remember uh, John McCain coming out and telling us that Arizona had no homeless veterans. So Lewis Arthur out there with veterans on patrol helping the homeless veterans in the uh, Tucson area showed up at McCain's office with 100 homeless veterans. And he went out, he stayed inside, he wouldn't come out and talk to the people. And he, he just did his basic um, rhino tactics, turned and tucked his tail and ran. Um, He's a very big disappointment to me, that John McCain guy. Uh, he's a disgrace to the Republican Party. And uh, like I said, a Republican in name only. It's really sad what that man has turned into. Can you imagine if he was our president? I think the saving grace might have been Sarah Palin in that administration if he would have won. A big, big, big turd he turned out to be. You know what I mean? <clears throat> And, of course, you heard the uh, Feed the Beast No More campaign. Dr. Sylvester Bland, head over to his website, www.feedunitedstatesofamerica.us. Feed the Beast No More. Um, We had a small victory in the House of Representatives where 200, I believe, 44 Republicans and 47 Democrats upheld a and made a veto-proof law uh, I can't tell you the, uh, the bill number right now off the top of my head. But it's a veto-proof bill. Uh, it creates more hurdles. Folks, hurdles, <laughs> they're easy to get over, okay? These guys are not stupid. They'll figure out a way around it or they'll find a loophole. They'll get in. They're coming. This is not going to stop them. Forty-seven Democrats voted for this along with the 244 House Republicans. Not because they care about national security, but because they're scared their constituents won't vote for them in the next election. So remember those 47 Democrats, folks, they're not on your side. They only want to stay in power. So remember those 47 Democrats. It's easy to find a list of who voted for, for that on the Democratic side. Um, and as you know, the presidential race is uh, on, folks. 
the debate necessarily I don't watch them. I can't spend my time watching these. The, the, the moderators are a joke. They're, not, they're trying to pick the Republicans against each other and make them bicker and fight and argue because news is now not news, it's entertainment. And so, therefore, I can't watch these damn debates. But um, poll came out today. I guess uh, Trump is at 28% favorability amongst Republicans with uh, Ben Carson and Ted Cruz tied at 18%, Marco Rubio at 11%, Chris Christie and Chiarina each at 3%. And Marco Rubio, he's down there still trying to battle it out. He's in fourth place right now. And uh, he's a senator from Florida. Of course, most people know that. I voted for this gentleman because when he ran, he ran, um, if I get elected, I will never vote for amnesty until border security comes first. So secure the border, then we'll go for amnesty. Then he joins the Gang of Eight with uh, Turncoat McCain and the rest of those turds in the Gang of Eight and stands us all in the back. And, I, I, you know, like I said many times before, I, I wouldn't vote for Rubio for the president of the 4-H club, let alone president of the United States of America. So right now the field is getting thin. Fiorina and Chris Christie are out for me. So that leaves the top three. Trump, Carson, and Cruz. Um, you know, who knows? But uh, we have a gentleman who's going to join us this evening. His name is Todd Wilcox, Republican. He's going to be running for Marco Rubio's seat in the next election. I'm going to bring him in real quick. His name is Todd Wilcox. Good evening, sir. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. I'm the host, Mark Hoffman. This is Patriot Nation Radio. How are you? Good, Mark. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, good to be on Patriot Nation. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, I, I like people who get the opportunity to hear what their candidates are like right from the source, not from what they may read in some publication like the Tampa Tribune or the St. Petersburg Live as I like to call them, because they, they print full crap in that paper. So let's let's move on with this show and this interview. Um, briefly uh, introduce yourself to folks and uh, tell them what got you involved in, in the political uh, realm of things. Well, I appreciate, appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Um, let me start with why I'm running, because I get that question all the time. I, I'm, I'm fed up with career politicians, and I can tell by having listened to you for a few minutes here on your show that you are as well. Uh, I'm running. I'm running because I desperately think we need to get back to a citizen government, which is what our founding fathers envisioned. Um, I'm gravely concerned, as many of us are in the Republican Party, about the future of our nation and the negative effect that these professional political class clowns uh, from both parties, frankly, are having on our constitutional republic. I've, I've served our nation most of my adult life, and, and I refuse to go to my grave wondering if I could have done something about it. So. Um, there's three big issues that are going to define this election, and I've got 26 years of real-world experience that line up with that. So let me give you my background. Um, I grew up here in Florida. I was one of six kids from a very poor family, raised in South Tampa by a single mother. Um, realized in my early teen years that I had to get an education in order to break out of that poverty and uh, graduated from Robinson High School in, in Hillsborough County, one of the poorest uh, high schools in the county. Attended ROTC, uh, got an ROTC scholarship and went to the University of Tampa and uh, got a 
graduated in 1989, was commissioned into the regular Army as a second lieutenant, uh, went to Ranger School and straight off to the 101st Airborne Division, uh, served as an infantry platoon leader in Desert Storm. That was my first uh, combat experience. Then when we got back, I uh, volunteered for Special Forces. I earned my Green Beret and uh, commanded a Special Forces A team in East Asia in a, in a counterterrorism role. Uh, then in 97, I resigned as a major and I joined the CIA. And I did two years of Arabic studies and then I posted to the Middle East uh, just before the, the global war on terrorism started. Uh, saw combat a second time as a paramilitary officer with the CIA, supporting the global war on terrorism in the military in the Middle East. And then my last assignment was here in Orlando, which is where I live now. Uh, I was assigned to the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force as the CIA referent or uh, representative. Did that for about two years, and then in 2006 I resigned, and I started the first of what has become three very successful businesses, all focused on America's military, economic, and diplomatic strength around the world. Last year I was recognized by Ernst & Young as an Entrepreneur of the Year uh, here in Florida. And frankly, just kind of looked up after 10 years of growing my business and, and raising my kids, despite the, the erosion of our personal freedoms and the, the burden of an overcomplicated tax system. I, and I saw that Marco Rubio wasn't going to run for the seat. We're frankly giving up the incumbent advantage twice now. And I saw the guys that were lining up to run for it. And frankly, they're the same old thing over and over again. You know, Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. I don't get why we keep electing career politicians thinking we're going to get something different. So that, that's my background. That's why I'm running. Um, be glad to answer any questions. There's really three three uh, three uh, big issues that are going to define this election. And, you know, if we can't counter uh, Patrick Murphy, who is a uh, very moderate Democrat, well-funded, articulate young guy, beat Alan West in Boca Raton, uh, second-term congressman, if we can't contrast him with something besides a career politician, we're going to lose this seat to the Democrats. And as you know, Mark, if we lose four seats in the Senate, the, uh, the Democrats take control. And this is a line we got to hold. So um, so that's why I'm running. Absolutely. First and foremost, I want to thank you, sir, for your service to our country and uh, uh, standing up for our Constitution. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Because um, if we don't do it, if our generation don't do it, we're going to look down at our kids and they ask, hey, Pop, what did you do to secure freedom, and what was it like to be free? I never want to answer that question. Well, frankly, where we're at now, Mark, the answer is going to be we ran you into debt. I mean, we've got yeah. what will be $20 trillion of national debt by the time this president yeah. leaves office, and nobody's talking about the unfunded liability. That's another $65 yeah. trillion, and that's a conservative estimate. And that's you know unfunded yeah. liabilities in the form of Social Security, Medicare, and retirement benefits for the federal workforce. Nobody's even talking about that part. I heard, I heard it's more around 120, but uh, it, yeah, as a conservative estimate, 65. But I think I've quoted it between 65 and 150, depending on who you listen to. I mean, you know, right. I've been running businesses for the last 10 years, and and your listeners who own businesses and operate businesses understand generally accepted accounting principles. If the government had to show its balance sheet the way corporations do, we'd all be in bankruptcy restructuring right now. You know, we would fire yeah, the management yeah. team and we would be, you know, putting us into receivership and, and restructuring for bankruptcy because that's where we're at as a nation right now. Well, when that happens, they just call the Federal Reserve and they print $85 trillion and off we go. Yeah, and well, that's going to stop paper. eventually when the House of Cards falls, you know. Yeah, and we hopefully we can stop the House of Cards from falling. Uh, it's really up to the American citizens to keep fighting, you know. Um, 
I call my senators all the time. Um, you know, you never talk to them. You know, I mean, just, uh, we do an interview here, and you may, if you get elected, I'll probably never talk to you again, maybe. Who knows? No, no, that's not the case, because I'm not a career politician. I mean, I'm not right. a lawyer. I've, I've never run for help for a public office before. I mean, that's, that's, that's what makes me different from the other three guys running for this seat on the Republican side is I've never held public office, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, so that right, right there is just, you know, is differentiation, you know, amongst so many other aspects. And I think David Jolly is going to run for uh, for that seat. And uh, I, I was um, backing Lucas Overby in District 13 against him um, just because I wanted something fresh. I, I heard so many things about David Jolly, is what his real goal is to rub elbows with the elitists and move up the corporate ladder in politics. Um, what do you got to say about his campaign again? I don't know if you followed it. Yeah, I, I'm really focused on really focused on my message, Mark, and, and you know I talked about those three issues that are going to define this election. It's really national security, yeah. and we see that you know first yeah. and foremost after what happened on Friday, it's the economy Absolutely. and it's defending our constitutional republic. And you've mentioned that you you got a libertarian streak in you, so do I. There, there's a there's a storm on the horizon, and, and few people are paying attention to it. And it's more dangerous than ISIS. It's more dangerous than our broken border. It's more dangerous than our debt. It's the eroding um, aspects of our constitutional republic. We're moving into a post-constitutional era. I mean, literally, there is no aspect of our lives where the central government, where the federal government does not play the role of some form of caretaker. I mean, it's college education, subsidized health care, housing and mortgages, food, cell phones, free birth control for young women. I mean, I don't know if you read history, but... Uh, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America, and in the latter chapters of that two-part volume that he wrote in 1840, he warned after five years of observation that America's liberty would be threatened not by swashbuckling dictators or coup d'etats, but through the soft tyranny of a government that takes on the role of a national nanny, protecting the child citizen from every adversity, and that's where we're going. And if we don't stop it by changing this paradigm of career politicians who go to D.C., as a career versus service, we're never going to dig out of this hole. I, I agree 100%. So I, I have some other questions, but um, I can tell where you stand. On it. One, one of the questions I like to ask um, guys and politicians who come on the show is uh, their stand on the Second Amendment, but I think I know right where you stand. <laughs> <laughs> well, having served in combat twice, having uh, served in the CIA, um, you know, one of my businesses is a... Uh, uh, is an international freight forwarding uh, logistics company. We provide those logistical services in hostile envir- environments. So one of the contracts my company, Innovative Logistics, has is delivering the U.S. postal mail by ground in Afghanistan to our troops. And by virtue of that, we had to get a federal firearms license. So if that will tell you anything, of the four candidates running for the nomination for Rubio's seat, um, I'm probably the only one that's got a federal firearms license. There you have it. And, uh, you don't need an entourage, then you're fully capable of taking care of yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 looking forward to, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to the debates, and I would really like to debate Alan Grayson. I think that would be a real hoot. Yeah, he's that guy. I don't know about that guy. Yeah. He's a, I don't know. I think some of the Democrats, like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and him, that come out of Florida, are kind of really been drinking that Democratic Kool-Aid. I'm telling you. Yeah, it, yeah. it's. I don't. I don't really understand. And listening to this debate on the on the refugees, I mean, 
the way the, the president and, and the hard left progressive Democrats have really tried to turn this into a, a very nasty personal uh, fight as opposed to a debate, you know, over national security, which is what it is. I mean, that shows the true nature of their divisiveness. Um, you know, it's, I look at their logic and I wonder if they weren't dropped on their heads when they were kids, you know, I just don't get where they're coming from. And, you know, like, um, they're gambling with, uh, Americans' lives by bringing these refugees in here. Um, and, and I don't care what they say about the vetting process. As far as I can tell, the record keeping over in Syria right now, in the last five, ten years, probably ain't so good. And no, there ain't so many records on these people. No, so you're going to have to take them at their word. Yeah, you got to yeah, take them at their word. I'm not a terrorist. Okay, check right here, sign right here. You're in. Yeah, and who's doing the vetting? They don't seem to want to get into the details of that. Um, I served in the CIA, I speak Arabic, I served in the Middle East, and I can tell you that we in the CIA did not have a foolproof system for vetting our human assets, much less refugees. And that's with the backstop of being able to check documentation. Like you said, there's no existing government where some of these people are coming from, so there's no way to verify their passports or their documentation if they even have documentation. So the notion that we can't just take a pause um, – and that the president would not accept that, it just just goes to his arrogance. And it's just, this is going to be ISIS will be Obama's legacy. And uh, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, but I put out a a, a plan on how to destroy ISIS. And, and I was surprised. I was on another talk radio show the other day, and they pointed out the fact that of all the Senate candidates and all of the presidential candidates, I was the only one that had a written plan for how to do this. And uh, it's on our it's on my website. It's on our uh, Facebook page, which is Facebook uh, Todd Wilcox 2016. We put it out by Twitter as well at Todd Wilcox 2016. But it calls for a standing uh, 200,000 man Arab army with the U.S. having a small footprint and really providing command and control, um, intelligence, um, logistics, close air support. And medical support, and I name names: a Fifth Special Forces Group in Erbil, you know, two wings from the U.S. Uh, Air Force providing close air support, a, a naval carrier group in the Med with a Marine Expeditionary Force, and then JSOC, Joint Special Operation Command, providing special mission units to kill and uh, decapitate the leadership, and then and then hit them with cyber and, and shut down their money. Um, and and it's out there. Uh, if your readers want to go to uh, Facebook slash Todd Wilcox 2016, they can pull up the plan. Sunshine State News published it the other day, and then Political picked it up, and Orlando Sentinel ran a piece on it as well. Um, but there's, that's, that's what you're going to get when you, if we can return to a citizen government. If we can return Washington and our nation, frankly, to a citizen government and elect people with real-world experience, you're going to get real talk, and you're going to get real plans and real proposals. As it stands now, we're getting a bunch of talking points uh, both from the Obama administration and, frankly, from the Republican leadership as well. And um, economically, what was, do you have any ideas of things you want to do to try and uh, rein in the economic mess that we're in right now? Like, um, I don't know, work on taxes, write some bills to maybe do a fair tax, flat tax. I know that a lot of people are against that. I don't, I don't know why, but for some reason, nobody wants to go to a fair or a flat tax. Right. There's aspects of both that, that appeal to me. The fair tax folks, uh, we were at the Sunshine Summit here just this uh, last week, and the fair tax folks had a booth, and they, they came over and pressed me, man. They were they were aggressive, and they wanted to you know court me and get me on board. They're going to sit down with me. 
had had uh, had um, you know signed on and endorsed that plan. And I've looked at it. Uh, I'm not sure how we get through the transition from our current tax system to that new fair tax system. There's got to be a bridge between the two. But there's aspects of it that I like. It's very simplistic and, it, and it's based on consumption. Um, I don't necessarily agree that we can get away with not um, paying corporate taxes in some form or fashion, and that's what that plan calls for. But there's aspects of it that I really like. But really what we've got to do is get to the heart of our debt problem. We have a spending problem, not a taxation problem. Yeah, yeah, we pay yeah. $3 trillion every year. What we should do is cap our spending at $3 trillion. What we need is a not a debt ceiling, which is an artificial index. We've we got to stop spending money we don't have. We need a constitutional right. amendment for a balanced budget. That would fix a lot of the problems. And then go one step further, going back to my, my premise that these career politicians are the genesis of most of our problems, let's put in term limits in Congress, two terms for senators, strip away any pension benefits, make them live under the same laws that they force everybody else to live under, and ban them from life from ever being lobbyists. That will end the career aspect of politicians because they will have no virtue or no, no venue by which to get rich. They go up there, they serve like our founding fathers envisioned, and then they come home. That's the way it should be, and that will help. I agree. Hello? Seems to have lost. Uh, yep. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Um, well, in that vein, um, with the balanced budget amendment and um, term limits amendment, there is a group out there now that's talking about constitutional conventions, uh, countermand amendments, citizens' initiatives, and things like that. What, what do you think about? Uh, a, a there, constitutional convention. To, yeah, uh, there's, there's a convention of states, the Article 5 Convention of States, that's growing yeah. some momentum. And what I understand right now is they've got 29 states on board. And as you probably know, you need 34 uh, to call a convention and you need 38 to ratify. And with the number of governors you know, on the Republican side, we're almost, we're almost there. Uh, my fear is the way they count the delegates. If you get into a constitutional convention, we all lose control. Whatever they do is what they, you know, is what we're stuck to ratify. Now, the off-ramp would be ratification. So if they pass a whole bunch of stuff we don't like, you know, we, we have one more chance to, uh, to defeat it when you go to try to get it ratified. But I, I'm in favor for it. There, there's a couple things we need to do. The constitutional amendment um, for a balanced budget one. I think we should look at birthright citizenship. You know, I, I think, and I'm not a constitutional scholar, but um, I am a constitutional conservative candidate. I think there's room right now um, to eliminate birthright citizenship the way it's written, because there's a clause under jurisdiction in the Constitution. But well, they're taking advantage of, of the of the little uh, loophole in in that. Yeah, no, no they are. They are. Um, but that and, would be another thing I'd want to look at is a, is birthright yeah. citizenship. Um, term limits. Those those are three things that a con that a, a convention of the states might address. Um, so so I'd be in favor of of looking into it. I don't know all the ins and outs of how it how it happens. It should be a complex uh, task. It should be hard to do uh, because our constitution is the basis of our government and it is the best form of government in the history of mankind. So we don't want to tinker with it too much and it should be difficult. But we're getting to that point now where there's got to be some adjustments to our system. I agree. I'm going to tell you something that I that I stumbled across this week that I thought was pretty crazy, and um, what as citizens we might be able to do. Um, a guy sent me a video uh, from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he uh, was following some buses that just offloaded 
There's about 30 buses, people from UPS parcel planes. Um, what, what could people do if they see this? That, you know, because that's, I've seen the video, I've seen the pictures. Uh, UPS is stating that they're detainees getting ready to be processed to deportation, regardless of their flying on UPS planes. Is that normal? I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, no, I hadn't. I hadn't heard about that. You mean that the um, immigration service is contracting UPS to deport people? Yeah, that's that's what UPS. That's their claim that they were detainees for deportation. Hmm. Yeah, I do know that uh, DHS and and portions of the immigration service had put out contracts because one of my companies is a defense contracting company. This was back in 2007, and they were putting out tenders for corporate aviation, you know, commercial aviation outfits to provide, you know, leased aircraft for uh, support to deportations. But I would find it hard to believe that the government would turn over, you know, jurisdiction and, and custody of deportees um, or, or you know, people being deported uh, to a commercial vendor. At, at, uh, I don't know. All right. It's kind of weird. I just, uh, to me, regardless of who's on the plane, who knew that UPS transported people? I had no clue. I mean, uh, I know they had a contract in the in the 90s and into the early 2000s, and they would uh, book people on flights to, to vacation destinations. But uh, in order to stay competitive, they had to spend too much money to stay competitive in that market, so they dropped out. I think in 2000 or 2001, they stopped that program. And then fast forward 10, 12 years, and they are transporting people there. But, uh, you know, whatever, that's kind of crazy. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with Senate candidate for Marco Rubio seat from Florida, Republican Todd Wilcox. This is the World Integrity News Network, and uh, we are live, and this is a great interview. Um, I like this guy. Uh, he may get my vote if he keeps saying the things he's saying. I kind of like what I'm hearing. Um, if you have a question, maybe you want to ask Todd a question, give us a call at 516-453-9128. Press one if you have a question. Uh, pick up the line and uh, you can ask him, uh, ask him something. Uh, be respectful, be kind, be nice if uh, you're from the other side. And if you're from his side, you're good to go. <laughs> All right, man. Um, there's so many things. Uh, this attack in Paris is really um, weighing on the hearts of a lot of people. And, uh, of course, um, it brings back kind of like flashbacks of 9-11 to some folks, the feelings that people are having toward these terrorists. Um, where do you stand in the, as far as, I, I know where you stand, but I want you to explain it to the listeners. As far as national security, what we as citizens can attempt to do to uh, encourage our politicians to protect our national security. Right. Yeah. Well, national security is one of those three issues that I said is going to define this election. And I mean, first and foremost, we need to, we all need to recognize that ISIS and Islamic extremism, and frankly, not just Islamic extremism, but Arab, Sunni, Muslim terrorism is an existential threat to Western society. And we saw that first and foremost uh, in this recent attack in, in, uh, in Paris. We need to use every lever of power we have to destroy ISIS, diplomatic, military, cyber, economic, and frankly, even cultural, because we've got to get at the root causes. 
but it, it's pretty clear that, uh, as the president claimed, they are not a JV team. Uh, ISIS is not right. contained, and they're not degraded. And the president just the other day was touting the, the GOPs, um, or taunting, rather, the GOPs and those Democrats that are supporting the bill coming out of the House now, that we're all afraid of women and orphans. And then an hour later, uh, French authorities confront the master, you know, the ringmaster of the attack, and a female suicide bomber blows herself up. This, this president has been wrong time and time again on foreign policy and national security issues. And I can just picture Jimmy Carter right now smiling ear to ear because he is no longer the worst national security president in the history of our you, country. Obama. You think he's going to take... You think he's going to take the plaque off his wall and say, here, this is yours? Obama's got it. I mean, literally, I start out, I put out a a column as part of my plan, and the the first sentence, which which will probably get me audited next year, says the blood of the 129 victims in the Paris attack is on Obama's hands as a direct result of failed policy in Iraq and the precipitous pullout in 2011. And I was in Iraq. I fought in Iraq both the first Gulf War and – I was a CIA paramilitary officer during the second Gulf War, or the second Iraq War. We had a SOFA, SOFA agreement, a Status of Forces agreement. That was Bush or uh, President Obama's yeah, justification yeah, yeah. pulling everybody out. Was he? He said he couldn't get a Status of Forces agreement. Well, in fact, we had a Status of Forces agreement negotiated. He took the mm-hmm. unprecedented move of demanding that Nouri El Maliki, the Prime Minister of Iraq, get it ratified by Parliament, their version of Congress. That was never going to happen. In the Middle East, you don't take on a fight if you know you're going to lose. So he didn't do it. And so that was Obama's justification to pull all of our forces out. When he did that, we degraded our CIA and our DIA collection capabilities to the point where we were blinded. ISIS was a creation of two things. It was a combination of the senior Ba'ath Party intelligence officers who were now without a job because of the, the error uh, that, that uh, Ambassador Bremer did when he you know, debathified and, and released the entire military. So you had the Ba'ath Party intelligence officers, and they uh, collaborated with what was left of al-Qaeda to create a state in Syria and in northern Iraq, a vacuum that was left after we pulled all of U.S. forces out. And we didn't see it coming in the spring of 2013 because we had no longer had any CIA or the uh, DIA assets on the ground to collect against it. So this, this, it's a misnomer to say that this was Bush's fault or this was a result of us going into Iraq in the first place. It was a result of us pulling out of Iraq and leaving nothing behind. So they should have left like t- at least 10,000 troops in there to keep an eye on and train and keep things moving in the right direction. Advise and then stay involved in the mess that we created. Yeah. Frankly, you know right. the the. the Shia-led Baghdad government took out retribution on what had been a Sunni-dominated society for 30 years under Saddam Hussein, uh, and, and we should have expected that to happen. We knew that was going to happen, and we did nothing about it. We took our eye off the ball. So the, uh, going back to your question, national security, national security is going to be one of the defining issues in this election. And then on top of this asymmetric threat that's growing overseas, Obama is gutting our military. We're releasing in a reduction in force up to 40,000 troops over the next two years. By the end of his administration, if we keep on this trend, we will have a World War I-era military, specifically our long-range air capabilities and our Blue Water Navy. We'll be back to World War I levels. I mean, it's atrocious, and for all of us who fought in the military and 
fought gangs in Afghanistan and Iraq um, because of his ill-conceived strategy or lack thereof. Um, it, it's broken. And, and you got to ask yourself, why does this matter to Florida? Well, here in Florida, we've got U.S. Special Operations Command headquartered at McDill. We've got Air Force yeah. Special Operations Command at Hurlburt Field up in the Panhandle. Patrick Air Force Base over in, for all those who surf, they all know where it's at over in Melbourne. You have Southcom, the Southern Command down in Homestead, and Naval Air Stations in Jacksonville, Pensacola, and Key West. The force structure going forward is going to have an impact on our economy. So who better uh, to formulate force structure policy as the next United States Senator, senator than a uh, combat veteran of multiple wars? You know, I would ask who better to elect and nominate for the Republican ticket for the Senate seat to defend our veterans than a combat veteran himself, you know? Um, right. It, it just makes sense. I mean, it, and who better to lead and debate and, and, and formulate policy to combat Islamic terrorism than an Arabic-speaking former CIA case officer that's a veteran of the global war on terrorism? I mean, that's what makes me different from the rest of these guys. These are the three candidates that are seeking Marco Rubio's seat. So I'd ask your listeners to, uh, to, to go to my website, Todd Wilcox 2016, and can see my extended bio. Um, there, there's links to Facebook and YouTube and videos. And, and uh, check out what I have to offer. It's, it's a different story. Um, I've put a half a million dollars of my own money into this campaign, and uh, it, it is going to be an expensive race. Florida's a big state, as we all know. So, and I'm up against the establishment. So, um, for those who like what they hear, um, I, I welcome their support, either as volunteers um, to help me spread the word, or, or to donate if they can afford it, have the means and motivation to get involved in the campaign. They can donate on the website as well. Absolutely, great deal. Um, I had a question that slipped my mind. Oh no, here we go. Um, recently, I had a, a young lady on who was from Iran or the Islamic Republic of Iran. And uh, she was telling me about a little bit about the people in the Middle East and how they feel about America. And she said, uh, especially in uh, Iran, um, 60% of the new generation right now loves our constitution, our country, our flag, and our people. Is that what you came across in your time over in, uh, in the Middle East, that, that they really do? The people, because over here we have a misconception that if you're from the Middle East, you're a terrorist. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's um, not, not necessarily the case. I've done business in the Middle East. I mean, we, we um, provide logistical support in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, parts, of, parts of northern Africa. I've, I've had an office in Dubai. I've lived in Egypt and Jordan and, and, and operated in Iraq and, and worked in Saudi Arabia as well. It, it's, it's not unlike, um, well, it is unlike Christianity, but it's, if you look at any organization, any ethnic, any religious group, there's always going to be extremes. I mean, but there is a moderate sector of, of Muslims um, that feel like uh, ISIS and Islamic terrorists have hijacked the religion. Um, you know, we had our own inquisitions. You know, nobody wants to admit that, but we were as brutal as these guys were at one time in our history. Um, so, you know, it, it's not the notion that everybody from the Middle East is a terrorist. I don't believe that, and I know that firsthand. It's not the case. They love our culture. Um, they, they want to send their kids here. Many of them want citizenship here. Uh, this is still the greatest nation in the world, and they want to come here. They want to give their kids that kind of life. Um, there are a lot of radicals, though, and we have to be very careful about those we let in here. Um, but that, it, you know, that takes us back to the immigration policy. We should be a brain drain on the rest of the world. We, we should have a legal 
uh, immigration policy that, that draws the best, the brightest, the richest, the most beautiful people from the world to come to America. Because, frankly, we don't have enough naturally born children in America to sustain our tax base. So we are a nation of immigrants. We need legal immigration. If we would just enforce the immigration laws, that 14 million uh, illegal immigrant number would go down over time. If we didn't have sanctuary cities, we're already seeing a few uh, research released to polls that are released to data today that there are more Mexicans leaving America than there are coming in. I need to do a little more research on that, but that's a trend that is reversing because the economy in Mexico is getting better. We're starting to cramp, clamp down on them, um, and there's just not as many opportunities here as there used to be. So if that's the case, then let's get rid of sanctuary cities, let's get rid of the birthright citizenship, and enforce the law, and that number will go down over time. And, and frankly, right. when, the, when Democrats talk about immigration, and we all know this, if they thought that that 14 million illegal immigrants were going to vote Republican, they would have built a wall five years ago. You know? yeah. Their population <laughs> is they're going to vote Democrat and change the demographic. So we just need to enforce the laws. All right. Uh, speaking of a wall, uh, Donald Trump, he, that's how he sprang it, sprang right up to the top of the pack, is talking about building a wall. And, uh, you know, building a wall, to me, we, we helped in it. We, you know, we encouraged Germany and them to knock down the Berlin Wall, you know, the wall. You know, that's the same principle. But the way things are, I believe we need this wall. And folks keep trumping. Well, it's going to cost them $30 billion of your hard-earned tax money. And I keep saying to folks, if you really feel that way, uh, you need to contact some folks like um, the young lady Kate out in San Francisco, how her father feels uh, after her daughter was killed by a guy who had uh, like seven felonies and was deported five times and just got out of jail and killed his daughter on the boardwalk. If there's a value on the uh, on his daughter's life, um, if you ask me, if someone came to my house and had seven, uh, five felonies and was deported seven times or whatever the numbers were, deported once and one felony, bad enough. This guy had multiple felonies and multiple deportations, killed a young lady on the. What is her value of her life? To that father, you cannot put a value on that life. So to that father, a $30 billion price tag is nothing when it comes to the life of his kids. Uh, where do you stand in, in the realm of that wall and the cost and that? Yeah, I, I mean, the cost, the defending our borders, uh, first of all, the borders, defending our borders is a national security issue. It's not, a, it's not an immigration issue. We're an right. industrialized nation in the Western society, the leader of the free world. We need to enforce our border security First and foremost, especially with ISIS at our doorstep, it's like having, you know, a, a, you know, a criminal at your doorstep and your door is wide open. You know, it, it just doesn't pass the, the the sniff test. In terms of the cost, the cost is greater not to do it. I mean, what's the impact on our school overcrowded schools, overcrowded classrooms, emergency room visits, social benefits that we're doling out to these people, especially in sanctuary cities? That cost way exceeds the cost of the wall. But if you go back to immigration policy. Right now, it costs $500,000 for an EB-5 visa. An EB-5 visa is a visa that you as a foreigner can get if you buy property, create jobs, and pay for it. You're basically paying for citizenship. That should be $5 million. This is the greatest nation in the world. We should, and the, the people that will pay $500,000 will pay $5 million. 
let's sell our EB-5 leases to the richest people around the world and use that money to build the wall. Um, so that, no, that, that's a false argument that the, the cost to defend our nation is too great. I don't buy it. So I, I, I certainly uh, agree um, that we need to defend our, our border. And, and in some sense, it's going to be a physical wall. In other areas, it's going to be a virtual wall. Uh, we have the technology. Um, we have the force structure on the border. We have National Guard in, in all the border states. Uh, we have the resources to do it. We just want the leadership to do it. And, and the politicians we keep electing don't have the intestinal fortitude to get it done. They've been talking about immigration for 30 years, and they can't get it done. I mean, that's exactly why I'm running. Right. We need strong leadership. And I, I, I for one, believe that um, – our elected officials should at least have served in the military at least two years at some point in their life because um, it's very important as far as discipline and understanding the uh, oath to the Constitution. And a lot of people apparently in Washington right now don't respect the Constitution. I believe you respect the Constitution. And what would be your plan to restore some of the constitutional rights that are getting trampled, like, say, uh, the Fourth Amendment right because the NSA is spying on us. Or, right. or, you know, yeah. or when you see protests at the Bundy Ranch or something, they, they put up some fences and they put First Amendment area. As far as I know, the First Amendment is anywhere in the United States that is, is a First Amendment area. How can they cordon people off? What do you plan to restore? Well, these, uh, as I mentioned, there's three issues that are going to define this election and restoring our constitutional republic and, and, and you know, reversing this trend towards a post-constitutional era as part of that. Uh, I think first we need to rein back the IRS, the EPA, the Department of Justice, and the Department of Education. There's a Tenth Amendment, you know, and if it's not in the Constitution, it's a state's rights issue. The states created this nation and created the federal government, not the other way around. And we need to reduce the size of the, of the executive branch, not just the rate of growth, but hack off portions of the entire executive branch. I've done business with Commerce Department overseas. They are worthless. Um, they occupy space and, and steal oxygen in embassies. They absolutely serve no purpose to, uh, to commerce, to American businessmen overseas. We don't need it. It's Commerce Department. They've been relegated to the role of doling out you know, corp- corporate you know, cronyism and and corporate welfare at this point, and they provide a bunch of stats that nobody believes. Um, we don't need an EPA. We've, we, we have a Department of Environmental Protection at every state. Why do we need another Department of Environmental Protection at the federal level? Um, and a lot of times, you know, the states are have more interest in keeping the environment, you know, it's their backyard. Um, the Department of Education is redundant. We have a Department of Education at every state level. There's nothing in the Constitution about education. It's a state's rights issue. So we need to roll back the size of the executive branch. Um, and really the only way you're going to get that is if we have uh, non-career politicians serving in the Senate and in the House. And we're starting to see that trend. You're seeing more and more from the warrior class and the business leadership class running for office. I don't know why we cede control of our entire society to the legal class. As you probably know, Mark, 85% of all congressmen and senators are lawyers. I don't get that. <laughs> so there's some things we could do. Um, we need. To, I've taken an oath multiple times to defend the Constitution from enemies, foreign and domestic, and, and I'll take that oath again. And, and you know, I'm ready to step up and fight for America and fight for Florida and, and frankly, fight for you and 
and all of our children as, a, as the next United States Senator, and that would be one of the first things I do is to stand to protect the Constitution of America. And uh, are there any uh, upcoming debates uh, coming up soon? That, uh, that are on yeah, the schedule? Uh, yeah the, the presidential primary is sucking the oxygen out of the room right now, so people, a few people are paying attention to this. Talk radio has been a great uh, venue for us to get our message out. I've been doing several shows uh, a week. Um, you know, some of the blogs and some of the media is now starting to pay attention to the race, um, but just on the periphery. After the March 15th, I believe, is the presidential primary here in Florida. After that's over, you'll start to see people paying attention to the Senate primary. And so we anticipate, you know, a couple of debates. Uh, Tiger Bay Club wants to do one. I think one of the Chamber of Commerce is want to, want to put one on. Um, so we'll see a few. Uh, I don't know if we'll see a televised debate. It just depends on if the media is going to get involved or not. But we'll see a few debates, and, and I'm eager uh, to, to stand on the stage and differentiate myself from, from these career politicians. Right on. <laughs> Excellent. Um, what was I going to say? I had another question I wanted to ask real fast, and I can't recall. Oh, I remember. Veterans on Patrol is a, an organization out in um, Arizona right now. Um, they have two camps, Alpha and Bravo Base. And uh, it started out with a gentleman named Louis Arthur who started with a 22-day walk for the forgotten uh, in memory of the 22 military servicemen that commit suicide each day. And we all know that that number is higher. 22 a day is just those that the VA is, is uh, keeping track of. So it's probably more around 60 a day probably. Uh, more in one year commit suicide than in 10 years of war in the Middle East. Unfortunately, it's a horrible thing, but this gentleman started with a 22-day walk for the forgotten and has uh, morphed into veterans on patrol. And they have two camps set up. They're feeding homeless veterans. They're, they send night patrols out um, to find homeless veterans and bring them to camp and give them a shower and a place to eat and some food, so, uh, a place to sleep. And um, we're getting ready here in Florida, in fact, in Orlando, to kick off veterans on patrol. Florida, um, is that something that you might consider looking into? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm pulled up the, the beauty of uh, talk radio is I can sit on my computer while you're talking to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking right. at your website now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post this on my Facebook page. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. reach out to them. This looks like a noble cause, and I'd love to get involved with it. Yeah, they're doing great things, and they're getting ready to um, kick it off here in the Sunshine State. And um I think it's very important to take care of our veterans because, you know, when, when it hits the fan, we're going to want to turn to some of these guys that have the military experience and combat experience maybe if it comes to something crazy like that. So we need to take care of them so that they can take care of us when the need arises. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree completely. And I, I saw a big uh, picture right here on their, page, uh, their front page that says, Veterans Lives Matter. Um, you know what I mean? Yes, great. No, thanks for, for uh, enlightening me to this. Hey, Mark, I, I apologize, but i got to put my daughter to bed here. Um, she, she goes down at 9 o'clock, and i gotta, I got to put her to bed. Uh, any other questions I can, I can answer before we wrap up? No, I just asked you to check out another veterans organization. They're good folks. They just left from Florida. They received 40 acres in Texas, and they started freedomhomesforthesforgotten.org. Um, that's John and Zanetta Pate. They're formerly from Florida here. They uh, got donated 40 acres, and they went out there to house and help the homeless as well. 
another great organization. I'm always for the veterans. I had Dave Gray from Madison Rising on for Veterans Day, and we had a great show. Um, and, again, I want to thank you, sir, so much for your service to our country and for your time tonight. I hope that the listeners tonight got a, got a little um, idea of who Todd Wilcox is. And if that's going to be your choice for Senate, I don't think it's a bad choice, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, a lot of service to this country. Loves America. Loves his oath to the Constitution. Very important. Uh, especially when you call in and you get on an interview on Patriot Nation Radio. We are a station of patriots over here at World Integrity News Network. Todd, I want to thank you so much, sir, for coming on my show. And uh, maybe as the campaign rolls on, you can come on again and give us some updates. Yeah, I'd welcome that. Thanks a lot. I appreciate being on Patriot Nation and uh, look forward to meeting you in person, Mark. Yes, sir. And please uh, look up the World Integrity News Network on Facebook. We're a great organization. We're looking to give integrity back to the news, not what the mainstream media is feeding these people, turning them into blind sheep being led to slaughter. God bless, my friend, and good good luck with your campaign, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. much. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Ladies and gentlemen, Todd Wilcox, Republican candidate for uh, Martin Rubio seat here in Florida. Um, I thought that was pretty good, uh, pretty informative. Um, you know, there's, there's some things uh, maybe that you don't like, maybe some things that you do. Hey, Brian, I, I saw that you um, sent me a little message and you're on the line with us. Uh, what, what did you think of our candidate here in Florida, Todd Wilcox? He says a lot of great things. I do. I do have some problems. When I told you I would love to uh, interview him from the devil's advocate side, it's because of his background. When right. he talked about that, you know, people are wrong saying that it's failed policy. You know, not, not he didn't say that people were wrong for saying it. He says that he blames it on failed policy. I don't think it's failed policy. I think it is the policy. Uh, when you when you look at the actions, uh, I was on I listened to James's show earlier, and he talked about Merkel uh, two months beforehand. You know, talk saying, "No, these people are not terrorists. We got to be tolerant. We got to yeah. let them here." And then he gets attacked. It is the policy to bring them in. Uh, but there there is real so fast, many real fast. Real- Real fast, uh, some folks might not know who Merkel is, so maybe uh, just send that out there for him. The French, the French president. Uh, yeah, well, Merkel is the German president. Okay, I might, may have said the wrong one then. Who, whoever the one in France that James was talking about, like yeah. two months before the bombing, he was saying, "Oh, we yeah. got to bring them here. We got to help them." And then they get bombed, and then he goes to war. See, the the establishment, the conservatives generally speaking, are all for going over there and bombing these countries. Let's blow these people up. That's not the answer. That's what's got us into this. Because honestly, I am not sympathetic to to these jihadists by no means. They need to pay for the things they've done. But how many of it how much of it is being created because we're in all these countries killing innocent men, women, and children, dropping bombs on whole villages. How much is that causing people to be angry at us? Yeah, I agree. That's, that's some of the uh, the drone attacks that he's doing, too. 
um, like in Pakistan, he just indiscriminately bombing people, and he blew up a hospital. Um, and, and then, and then, if somebody kills your wife and kids, and you want to get back at the people that did it, even if it means blowing yourself up, you're called a terrorist. Yeah. 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 Now, I'm not going to say, I mean, but then if you go into the history of the CIA and almost every major leader of some terrorist organization has been ran by the FBI and the CIA. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah. it's not failed policy when it is the policy to create this stuff. Yeah, yeah. It- and some crazy things happening in our country right now. Like I'm, I'm baffled sometimes. It was, I, I look at the story, you know, and the way that Obama is just—he seems so out of touch. He seems like, like I, I don't know, man. He's pulling the strings. They really got him, man. I don't know what it is they got on this guy, but he just will not stand or or, or break don't- for anything. I don't think he's out of touch. Did you hear the montage James played in his show? No, sir. I was uh, at my son's Thanksgiving play tonight. It was a great time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, go back and listen. He played it after the half-hour break, okay? That montage, I'm going to tell you what. You cannot tell me that Obama is not a Muslim. Yeah. So it's not that he's out of touch. Remember what I said? It's the policy. It is the policy. Because he even talks about his Muslim faith in this montage. And this is all, it's just like a three or four minute montage. And uh, James can probably hook you up with the video. But it's all words from Obama. Nobody else, nobody putting their two cents in. It's, It's all little clips of Obama and his words. He's not a Christian. Yeah, I may have heard that. May have heard that montage before, but yeah. uh, I'm going to check it out. I I'll be listening to the show. I I usually listen to the show. Uh, every show I do, I try to listen to it as I can. And I'll, so I'll get that. And um, very important uh, that America really starts to wake up. It, it's really sad that we have to uh, see the death of innocence for people to go. Oh my God! Wait a second. Meanwhile, there's people like me and you and the World Integrity News Network and other alternate media sources that have been screaming about this stuff for years now. And yeah. uh, they don't listen. And now all of a sudden, you know, oh, maybe you guys with tinfoil hats can take the tinfoil hats off. Maybe you weren't wrong in the first place. Yeah. Well, see, and, and the thing, people, yeah. I mean, you go look at it, the DHS terrorism threat assessment. It doesn't say that extremist Muslims are threats. It says returning veterans are a threat to government. The Mayak Court doesn't say that, that the extremist Islam is the threat, that that gun owners are the threat. You go to the SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center. I heard this this week. Now, the search term may be wrong, but you look up Islamic terrorists. Search term may not be exactly right, but it doesn't say they are the threat. It says people that yeah. speak against the refugees or Islam is the threat. That's what I'm saying. He says it's failed policy. No, it is the policy. Right. You're right. You're right. 
That's absolutely true. I, I, I happen to agree with that. And that is definitely the policy. It's been the policy from the, uh, from, I guess, not, not this past song, but the song before when they were funneling their little children across the border. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, it's all, it's all a, it, it's in the Paul uh, Alinsky playbook. You've got to overwhelm the system to where it can't take no more. You know what's going to happen when they keep taking from me and giving to them, taking from people that go to work every day and pay their taxes and giving it to people who sit on the couch, smoke weed, and play video games. Eventually, the people that are working so hard and getting everything taken from them are going to go, God, man, I want to sit on the couch and play video games. I don't know about the weed part, but, you know, I, and I want a free phone, and I, I, want, I want an EBT card. And why do I have to work so hard for these guys to reap the benefits that my veterans should be and, having, you know? And, and that is why <laughs> we don't, and that exact thing is why we don't need a wall. You, they advertise in Mexico, come over here, we'll pay for everything. That's what's causing this. We quit paying yeah. and giving them welfare. Quit the anchor baby status because the 14th Amendment does not say they are automatic citizens because of the jurisdiction thereof part. He mentioned that. So they're not even yeah. part of our jurisdiction. You get rid of all this free crap and you enforce the laws that are already in place, guess what? They'll leave. If they can't get a job and they can't get their EBT cards and food stamps and Medicaid, guess what? They'll leave. Yeah. Hey, give me a second here. Ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, the last 15 seconds live. Go to www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash World Integrity News Network to catch the rest of this, uh, this show. It's going to run over a little bit. Thank you. Worldintegrity.com. <laughs> oh, we need that. We need that website. Worldintegrity.com, ladies and gentlemen, is not a website. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> man. It's been a long week, ladies and gentlemen. Stay with me sometimes I get loopy. <laughs> somebody needs to loopy. set somebody needs yeah, to I'm, set I'm the in. owner up with a WordPress because it's free on WordPress. Say World Integrity News at WordPress dot com or something like that. It's free, don't cost no money. Yeah. And then we would have a website, and I've mentioned that, but you know how busy the owner is. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, he, and he's been in, in, he's had some health issues. Uh, uh, we're talking yeah. about a good friend, Bobby, the CEO of the World Integrity News Network. He kind of got us all together and got this whole shebang going. Um, very cool. I'm very, very proud to be part of this organization. And uh, I, I remember when you first came on my show uh, back in the day there, and you were going through some of those issues. How are those going? You getting through that now? You almost done with that? You guys... Shoot. Shoot, no, still fighting. They're trying to, they're, now they're threatening to put me in jail because I refuse to follow the judge's illegal order. I've, I've requested the audio files for the uh, court hearings. And they're they're saying nope, we're not going to give it to you because we have a policy, not law, policy. They said just you yep. have to appeal the appellate court, and if they order us to, then we'll give it to you because they know I've caught them in criminal acts, and they're not trying to let it go. So now they're trying to put right. me in jail, and I'm like, sorry, you're going to have a rough road on that one. It's unbelievable. You got to keep fighting like this. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, have you been able to see your family? 
I see my wife and son. That's it. I don't get to see my daughter. I ain't uh, been able to see, see her. Yeah, I ain't been able to see her in what three? Let's see, three and a half years now. And so I get to see my wife maybe once a month. I mean, yeah, it gets hard. Get him, right? Yeah, it's better than not seeing him at all, though, right? Um, yeah. I'm really guilty. I don't know. I don't know what I would do if I couldn't see my son. I would die. I, 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 ladies and gentlemen, say a prayer for this gentleman. Uh, I mean, family. They've been really going through some tough times. Um, we, we've gotten man. people. He's trying real hard. Yeah. We've gotten people. Trying really hard to because, do the right thing. Yeah, we've gotten people's yes. attention because they, the people that, in all walks of life, that some are connected, some are not. If you know what I mean by connected, they all look yeah. at us and they say, "We don't know how y'all made it." Y'all been able to stay together. We have not divorced. We've not talked about it. We've stuck it out. I still go to do my job every day so my wife can stay home and homeschool my daughter and take care of my son. And, you know, we just we yeah. talk on the phone yeah. every day. I mean, it's the best we can do. But I'm in this for the long haul, and I'm fighting as hard as I can because why? My wife and my kids are everything. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, man, folks, folks pray for this man and his family. They need the prayers, ladies and gentlemen. Um, well, Brian, I'm going to wrap it up here. i got to get to get back to my uh, wife and family. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming in and contributing to the show tonight, my friend. Well, I'll be on Sunday night on the Rights of the Few, on the Wind Network, and on Talk Shoe, which I'm simulcasting right now on Talk Shoe. And that hey, is uh, 7, right, me... 7 to 9 Eastern Time. 7 to 9 Eastern on TalkShoe and on the Weld Integrity News Network. And all you folks out on TalkShoe that are listening in tonight, thank you so much for uh, for giving your time to listen to our show. And thanks, Brian, for simulcasting that out for us. I appreciate it so much. And ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Patriot Nation Radio Live on the Weld Integrity News Network. I want to thank each and every one of you guys for tuning in and supporting our show and our network. Without you, there is no show. We need you guys more than you need, uh, you know, more than you need us. And I appreciate your support and your time, as I said. And uh, I want to leave you guys with this great tune. Ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Lee Greenwood. Uh, God bless the USA. Sung by the United States Marine Corps. If tomorrow all the things were gone, work for all my life 